The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Sports Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericasports.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Welcome to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan, and I'm your host. For the next hour, we're going to talk about firearms and everything related, uh, including shooting, hunting, and and things related to the firearms industry. I'm joined today by my co-host, Zev, the Wolf Nadler, owner and operator of the concierge, uh, firearms concierge, and uh, bestdronage.com. Hey, Kelly. Thanks for having me, and uh, we're glad to be here today. We got uh, our first guest already uh, lined up, but I'm so excited to hear about what, what happened in Washington, if you don't mind sharing that. Well, actually, we've got a lot to talk about before we get into the show and, uh, and on with our first guest. Uh, one of the coolest things was the uh, announcement of the uh, new longest confirmed kill in combat record set by a, a Canadian sniper. Uh, some of you may or may not know that from 2002 to 2012, that record was held by a Canadian sniper, Rob Furlong, uh, 2,430 meters uh, set in Afghanistan, uh, was broken by a British sniper uh, using a, an Accuracy International uh, 338 Lapua. Uh, I think it was... Um, 2,700 yards, uh, roughly 35 meters longer than, than Rob's shot. And then just recently, within the last couple of weeks, uh, the new record, 3,450 meters, which uh, calculates out to just over two miles, uh, set with attack 50. So uh, very proud about that. But what I'm really amazed about and what I want to talk about is why this is such a big deal. Uh, and let me explain to you why I think it's a big deal. I got a message from a customer of mine in Denmark who sent me a copy of an article that was on the front page of their news. Now, I have to take it, uh, him at his word that it was actually about what he said it was because it was in a foreign language and I couldn't read it. But the fact is, is that this has been a big deal all around the world. Got another message today from a customer who happens to be in Vietnam right now, and he heard of it there and actually spoke to an American uh, that was there that, that had heard about it. So it's not just happening because of our relationship with the Canadians that we're hearing about it. I had a, a high school friend who lives in Syracuse, New York, who has no relationship to the, the firearms industry, uh, text me and, and tell me, uh, 
that she thought it was so cool that she heard you know my name on the radio when she uh, you know heard about the incident so it's something that's been fairly well broadcast and uh, really put out there and and I'm not sure what the change is you know when Rob set the record it was real low key you know the military knew about it our military heard about it you know because it had broken an American's record for the the longest confirmed kill so it was something that in the special forces word got around pretty quick but there was no publication about it no big deal made about it in the media but for some reason this particular event happens to be uh, big news all over the world what do you think about that Seth? you know I think that uh, firearms has been in the forefront of the news for so long now that anything that has to do with firearms uh, in any way will come to the front. Um, just like you, I've been getting, I probably got 40 messages from people who know that I work for McMillan and uh, congratulating us for having been the ones that designed it before you, you sold the company back in 2012, I think it was, or 13. And, um, you know, even a couple liberals, one from New York, a, a gal, and then another gal from Toronto. And I was really surprised that they saw it, but they actually sent me a, a copy of the uh, of the report, one in a New York paper and one in a Toronto paper. So I think people are interested interested in firearms in general and uh and i'm just real proud to be part of the company that created that technology well that kind of takes us to the next thing i want to talk about uh getting ready to leave uh for return to mexico early next week for the king of the two mile and part of why we do what we do in the extreme long range market is is to help provide data and feedback for um, everybody who wants to shoot long range, but in particular for the, the military and the people who would be charged with taking these kind of shots, you know, when, when there's a lot on the line, not just a, a you know, a personal record or, you know, a match championship at stake. So um, I think that uh, we've done a lot um, you know, producing the TAC-50, uh, something that my brother was very heavily um, involved in back in the mid-90s. Uh, we actually developed that rifle uh, at the request of the the Navy so they could uh, supply them to the, the SEALs. So it's been a long, long road. It isn't like it just happened yesterday, but I'm very proud, very proud of the work my brother did on the rifle, very proud of the, the McMillan contribution, of course, fiberglass stocks is on all McMillan TAC-50, so it, it's nice for the family to be able to share in that. Yeah, I was wondering, the, the SEAL team has been using that. Do we know what kind of rifle was used in the Captain Phillips takedown? That was not uh, one of ours. Okay, just yeah. wondering. Yeah. Um, so, back to the King of the Two Mile. So, we're going to be there next week. Uh, we're going to see if uh, some guys can uh, set a record. I had anticipated shooting, but my gun's not ready yet. So, uh, maybe next year, uh, my special secret squirrel special caliber won't be debuted at this year's king of two mile but maybe maybe in the next year um one more thing i want to talk about before we get into our first guest i don't want to take up too much time because he's got a lot to say i know um i spent all day yesterday in washington dc and i met with chairman bob goodlatte uh, of the judiciary committee in a round table to discuss the effects of Operation Choke Point, um, who had been affected, how they were affected, and 
specifically to try to figure out a path forward to try to undo the stuff that had been done by Operation Choke Point. Now, fortunately for me and for McMillan, uh, Bank of America asking us to find another bank didn't cost me any money. They didn't freeze any accounts, and it didn't have a financial cost to me other than you know the, the, the little bit of time and effort it took to find a new bank and to switch my accounts. But that's not the case with everybody. Uh, there were four uh, industry, firearms industry um companies represented there and five of the financial services industry and if you read between the lines on that that's basically um, payday loans and check cashing services which for whatever reason um, uh, apparently the last administration felt like that it was too easy for people to take advantage of people who didn't have the credit or didn't have uh, bank accounts that could actually cash um, pay di- uh, paychecks for them uh, to take advantage of these people so they wanted to put them out of business. So uh, just like in the firearms, completely legal, above board, following all the regulations and doing everything required to be a legal entity. But because the administration decided that it was an immoral company, uh, they wanted to try to do everything they could to, to force them out of business. And it's still happening. And though we have a new administration, the culture still exists within the judiciary or the the um, FDIC and the, and the financial institutions uh, and the regulators that are creating problems for these companies. And you know, I find it amazing that all this was was uh, precipitated back in the Obama uh, administration, where Eric Holder really got involved in Operation Choke Point, but also Fast and Furious. And what's even more surprising is I just heard a couple days ago that he might be uh, running for president in 2020. So you never know what's going to happen, and we really need to uh, to make sure that we protect our rights now. And I appreciate that you went there, and I'm looking forward to hearing, you know, exactly what they're going to do about it moving forward. Well, we were happy to have uh, Daryl Issa sit in on the meeting, too. He's been very instrumental in pushing forward uh, any type of research uh, on Operation Choke Point. One of the things that they're trying to figure out is how they can determine exactly when somebody was asked to leave a bank or had their accounts frozen that it really was Operation Choke Point and not somebody who was just not a very good you know, business risk for the bank. Uh, I know in my case, I know exactly what the reason was because the guy told me. Funny thing is, is that what I found out in this meeting of the nine companies that were represented, McMillan was the only one who had someone come to their office and sit down face to face and say, we want you to close your accounts. Every other entity had received a letter. (laughs) <laughs> and I think they learned from the firestorm that happened because of the face-to-face. And when I asked Ray Fox, is this because we manufacture firearms? And he said yes, because I think he was basically an honest guy doing a job. Um, it, it created so much problem for him. And to be perfectly honest, I think it was like six out of the nine individuals had had their relationship with Bank of America. So... It was a reoccurring theme. Um, Daryl Issa said it's probably not that Bank of America is any worse than anybody else. They're just bigger. And that's probably why they had such numbers represented there. But, um, you know, it, it's good to see that they want to do something. My, my 
contribution was to say, if you want to fix this problem, fix the credit card processing. That's that's the biggest problem for the firearms industry right now because the banks are still saying that we're a high risk industry and that we're we're um, too racked with fraud for them to be able to uh, you know do our credit card processing for us. And, you know, even though we don't know exactly why PayPal and Square and some of the other uh, processors that you can use with a little uh, uh, swiper, they won't deal with firearms industries either. And you can't even get them to, to run an a, uh, e-commerce site for you if you're in the firearms industry. And I don't think that there's any reason for it other than culture in that respect. You know, and I don't have a problem with the guy who owns um, Square saying, I don't want to do business with the firearms industry. I think that that's completely okay. And I think it's okay if Bank of America says, I don't want to do business with the firearms industry. But I think that they need to make that statement public. They need to explain why, and they need to be consistent. They can't just get rid of the little ones and then do a $350 million deal with the Freedom Group because it makes them a lot of money. So, yeah, that's all I ask of anyone doing business. I really I agree with the the adage that, uh, you know, we can choose who we do business with as owners. Um, I reserve the right to refuse to do business with anybody, um, and I should have that right to do that. So um, it looks like they're going to try to, to – the first thing is to replace the chair of the – um, FDIC, which comes up for an appointment uh, later in the year. So the first thing is to get the top of the, the food chain to be of our mindset and then have him start to change the culture on down the ranks. So it's going to probably take a while, but I think it's a, a good plan. Probably about the only thing that's going to work. That's great news. That's good. Well, okay, now on to our first guest. Really excited to have him on here. As uh, all of you listeners who listen to us on a regular basis know, I don't really take advantage of this opportunity to really promote McMillan very much. I do it a little bit because I'm on here every week. But the fact of the matter is is that this is my show, and today I've decided we're going to talk about the McMillan online store. And my guest today is Ryan Melancon, who has a long history with McMillan and uh, who is actually in charge of running the store, uh, a position that we came up with about uh, almost two years ago when we decided we wanted to have a store. So uh, I want to introduce him. Say hi, Ryan. Hey, guys. So let's uh, hear a little bit about you. Talk about uh, you know where you grew up, who you are, how you got into this, uh, and your experience within the McMillan organization. So I've been with McMillan for about 13 years now. Um, uh, I, I believe I was working at a basically a dead end job, and uh, actually uh, Kelly's son Ryan McMillan, who was stationed in Virginia at the time, we were talking on the phone, and he's like, uh, just talking about life, and he kind of was asking me how was how was going, and I said, you know, it wasn't going good, and he's like, well, you know, why don't you come work for my dad? And, he, and I go, well, what does he do? And he goes, well, he manufactures rifle stocks, and I thought, well, that sounds pretty sweet, so sign me up. So uh, I uh, came in and applied, and uh, basically uh, from day one, I just uh, worked from in every department here, uh, from hardware to shipping, uh, up in the front office, everything. Um, 
and ended up uh, kind of becoming the assistant production manager for a while, then the production manager. And then, like Kelly said, uh, with the birth of my daughter, we got together and kind of created a new position for me here uh, with the online sales. And that's what I'm doing now. You know, the reason I think that your history with Macmillan is important for everybody listening is that they will understand how it is that you... Um, come to run the store, why you do some of the things you do, why you choose the products, and that is because you've been involved from the very beginning all the way through the process and know exactly what it takes, and you've been around long enough to know what you know customers are looking for. Right, yeah. Be, being in, in, in constant contact, I was up uh, working, I mean, I worked on the shop for probably about five years, and then I moved up to the front office, and then being able to you know, uh, talk with customers on a daily basis. For the amount of years I have, you really start to figure out what they want and kind of hone in on that and start uh, carrying those products. So we just finished, uh, or we're yeah, we just actually crossed the two-year mark. Uh, we started out with a goal with the store and being able to provide customers with uh, products that we really believed in. One of the things that uh, I was um, interested to hear you talk about not too long ago is that you know we can't sell stuff that sucks because you know it it's really bad when we put a product up for sale and then people don't like it and and then we have to start scrambling so you know talk about how that came about and, and what that means when you choose products yeah, so there, I, I definitely learned my lesson. Uh, you do need to test your products, uh, every single one uh, that you carry, whether you know you use it on a hunt extensively or even you just take it out to the range and give it a try for a day. Uh, that is something that definitely needs to be done. Uh, the situation that I had was I was uh, we were going to be purchasing some uh, uh, magazines uh, for bottom metal, and. Uh, I, I didn't do my due diligence. I just took the company's word for it from what they told me. And actually, we put them on the store and we started selling some. And then all of a sudden, uh, I started getting some contacts from customers stating that the magazine wasn't holding up on the bottom metal and it was dropping out. And uh, it happened very quickly, a kind of a snowball effect. So, yes, uh, we did have to scramble and, uh, you know, we, we, we sent those back and we started carrying some different stuff, but it, it does happen. You know, I know there's another reason that you've chosen to do business with certain companies, too, because um, being able to depend on what you're told from vendors and to be able to keep your store stocked and have product is really important because customers really get ticked off if you have something listed that is continually out of stock. So I know that uh, we've decided to do business uh, with the people that we do business with because, one, they, they produce a, a good product and they stand behind it, and they're really good at making sure that we keep our shelves full. Yeah, building that relationship with your vendors uh, is key. Um keeping it friendly and and you know i mean we have an advantage uh with the mcmillan brand you know everyone knows of knows of us we've been around for 40 plus years and uh, so we you know we have a lot of hits on our website and uh so when that happens you know we we end up moving product fast and that, that keeps those vendors pretty happy with us one of the things that I was really, uh, I, I wasn't sure I was in favor of it when you came up with it, but I think your history as uh, the foreman and uh, production manager, I, I think it gave you an insight into being able to do something that 
is very difficult for us to do, and that is to figure out how to produce stocks and get them to customers in a short period of time. Now, our delivery time right now is running somewhere between four to six months. We work really hard to try to lower that at all times, but you know, when we, you're making 1,100 to 1,200 stocks a, a month, uh, 12 to 14,000 stocks a year, it's really difficult to be able to push a custom stock through the process and in any quicker than four months. But you've done something for the people that are online store customers that I think helped that. Why don't you explain that? Yeah, so I was, uh, I was noticing, you know, um, when we first opened the store, we were just carrying uh, rifles on the, sh- I mean, stocks on the shelf that are, you know, inletted for uh, factory rifles, you know, obviously Remington, Remington 700, a bunch of Seikos, uh, the Tikas, uh, Savages, and so on. But what I started to notice was that uh, when people would send me an email, call, call, give me a call, they would have all the specs that would be needed to fit into that stock except one. Maybe they had a different bottom metal or they had a different barrel. And that would throw them off from uh, purchasing uh, the stock. Well, one, they just didn't want to give it to a gunsmith to do it, or they had no idea how to do it themselves. Um, I, I deal mainly with retail customers, so a lot of them are afraid to start, you know, taking a Dremel tool or sanding on a $800 fully decked out uh, tactical A5. So what we decided to do was uh, we call them the inlet ready stocks. And what they are is we have the A5, the Game Warden, and the Macmillan Hunter. Those are some of the most, the mo- some of the most popular stocks we carry. And we have them in a few different colors. And basically uh, all the hardware, recall pad, and everything is done on them. They're just sitting here. And we're just awaiting uh, rifle specs from the customer. So if he does have a custom build, uh, you know, we can do a defiance with a Seekins bottom metal and a proof research barrel, and we can rush those through. Since everything else is done, they just have to go through that one step, and we can get those to you uh, in about four weeks. So can they actually order that online, or do they have to talk to you? They can actually fill out the cart and order it right online. So that's really cool. Now, one thing that I want to let everybody know, that if you want to deal with the online store and you want to purchase something from there but you're not really sure you can still contact us I know unlike a lot of other online stores they don't want you to call them they don't want you to talk to them they don't want you to bother them they just want you to buy the product and go on your way but we still encourage people if they have a question to contact you now I know you're not always available to take a phone call but you always get back to emails right away Correct. Yeah, I, I take a lot of pride in the customer service. I feel like, uh, you know, being around uh, in this industry as long as I have and then dealing with other vendors, customer service is kind of lacking uh, with some of the, uh, the other companies out there that I've dealt with. And I so I take uh, a lot of pride in that. I try to get back to people within 24 hours, if not sooner. And then also, like Kelly's saying, you know, you, you can always give us a call. Um, I'm out of the office sometimes on the shop floor doing shipping and so on, but uh, we also have a fantastic uh, sales staff that, that have been around here for many years and go out and use products like these and, and, and shoot. And I mean, Justin, uh, Irvin, Lynn, uh, fantastic. Yeah, and I glad, I'm glad you mentioned them because anybody that calls is probably going to talk to one of the three of those. Uh, they can also talk to me if they uh, happen to get me when I'm in the office and not traveling to D.C. or wherever I may be, might be. Um, I, I do like the 
dedication to customer service. You know that's the McMillan culture. Um, we would not be happy if we just produce the best fiberglass stock on the market if we didn't also provide the best customer service to go along with it. That's the way it's always been, and I'm glad you keep that up. Now, one of the reasons why we encourage customers to contact us is if you're not really sure, it's really better for us if you contact us, let us help you determine which is the right inlet for you, what you need, how you need to order to make sure that you get the right thing the first time. Because a lot of times customers think they know what they need to know, but they don't really know until they call us and find out, oh, I didn't know that. So that's one of the important things is to, so we don't ship out of stock, find out it's not the right thing for you, and then you have to send it back. We'd much rather you take the time. And, you know, Kelly, uh, just to remind everybody, I don't know if they, if they go out to your YouTube channel often, but you actually created a, a really nice video about a year ago talking about all the different options and how to order a McMillan stock. I think that's one of our uh, most viewed YouTubes out there with like 70 million hits. So I, if anybody is interested in how to do that best, go out to the McMillan USA. That's one word, McMillan USA uh, YouTube channel and watch that video. Yeah, there are a lot of videos on, on that YouTube channel that, that talk about how to do things, and and you can get to know Macmillan a lot better just by clicking on the videos, spending a couple of minutes. None of them are very long. I think the longest one probably is the uh, barrel uh, measuring kit video, but um, even in that, if, you, if you've got a custom barrel and you don't know exactly what the... Uh, the contour is and you want to make sure that your stock is right you know for a few bucks and the tools that you get along with that kit are more valuable than the kit cost so you can have that and you'll always have it so if you're the kind of guy who likes to to build a gun a year or so then we have a lot of customers like that you know that barrel measuring kit comes in handy because every time you want to send it in you get those dimensions just right and we'll send you the stock perfectly and you don't have to guess about whether it's going to fit or not um what are the most popular stocks we sell so definitely the A5. I mean, uh, that thing, we are st we still sell those, you know, by the hundreds with the custom department and through the online store. Um, but some others, uh, you know, that are popular is the uh, the Game Warden uh, and the Game Scout. Uh, the Game Warden is kind of a takeoff of the Game Scout with a little bit of wider forend for larger barrels. Otherwise, they're identical. But those two have been really good uh, you know, just straight comb, simple stock. Um, and then the, one of the newer ones that we've had out for maybe about a year and a half now, which is the Game Hunter, um, it has a vertical grip like the A5 and the Game Ward and such, uh, but it has a really nice high Monte Carlo uh, cheek piece to it, which uh, a lot of guys seem to be liking. You know, that I have not used that stock yet. I haven't built a gun for myself on that stock, but that's the next one I'm putting on a hunting rifle for me because it has what I like about the McMillan Hunter, which is the, the high rollover cheek piece that allows you to get behind the scope a little bit easier and, and uh, easier to find the sight picture. But the vertical, vertical pistol grip, when we end up shooting prone, is absolutely the best way to go. That's where it came from. You know, all these tactical stocks are designed to be shot prone, and when you're hunting long range like we do in Arizona, shooting from one uh, side of a canyon to another, you're going to do it prone, so having that vertical pistol, pistol grip really makes a difference. I wanted to ask you about uh, your hunting trip last year. You, you went out and uh, hunted elk, right? I did. My first ever uh, big game hunt right there, yep. 
Yeah, so t- tell us a little bit about it. it. It's kind of exciting for people who don't realize when a guy first gets bit. Yeah, I, uh, it was an experience. I got to tell you, you know, I, uh, I was finally able to get drawn, and uh, me and my buddies went out there uh, a little bit uh, north of Payson uh, here in Arizona. And I tell you what, I, I, thought, I thought I was in good physical shape. Um, I was wrong. Uh, I, I thought I might die out there, and my guys were going to have to try, uh, carry me back. I mean, it was that that tough. Unit 22 is brutal, guys, let me tell you. But, uh, no, I mean, it, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, you know, uh, uh, harvesting an animal is not an easy thing to do. Um, I actually teared up uh, once I pulled that trigger, and I saw that he was down. Um, but it's just, it's such an experience. It's it's an it's incredible, and especially when you can do it with your good friends uh, out there all together. Uh, one of the hardest things I've done, but one of the most re- rewarding things. And, man, I still got elk in my freezer. Well, Ryan, I'm really glad that you took this time to spend with us on the show today. Uh, one of the things about your hunting story that I really liked was that you said, you know, you're really lucky that you you ended up getting one. Because had you had to put all that hard work in and not harvested one the first time, you would nev- may not have ever hunted again because you didn't know what that meant. Did you put in this year? I did, and I didn't get drawn. <laughs> oh, bummer. Well, we still got... Did you put in for deer? I forgot. Okay, I, well, you know, elk and, and deer in Arizona that you put in for different times, so I'm waiting to see whether I got drawn for deer. Well, Ryan, thanks for, for spending this time with you uh, with us. I really appreciate you being on. Um, let the people know how to um, find out what's on the store. Talk about the website and how to get a hold of you. You can go to uh, uh, mcmillanusa.com forward slash retail store. Um, we also have a, a link uh, that says retail right on the top of the home page. You can click on uh, my email, store at mcmillanusa.com. Uh, don't, please, send me an email, ask me questions. Uh, I'm there to help. Thanks. Appreciate it. And I want to ask all of our listeners to stick with us for the next couple of minutes while we take a commercial break. And we'll be right back. Thanks. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. For over 40 years, Macmillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gunstock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, Macmillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for sticking with us through the commercial break. Man, uh, info-packed uh, first half hour. Really excited about that uh, conversation with Ryan. Uh, you know, he was nervous. A lot of guys get nervous when they get on the radio, but he did a great job. I was really happy about that. And I, I think the main thing that we really want to impress upon all our listeners that, you know, the store is there for your convenience. We have products that you can purchase right now. Get them within three to four days. We usually ship them out uh, at least three times a week so we, we never go longer than a, a day without shipping so uh, if you order it on a Monday uh, if it doesn't get shipped out on Tuesday it'll go on Wednesday for sure so um, that's the kind of process that we use uh, and we really do want you to make sure you get the right thing so if it requires contacting us either through email calling us on the phone you know Lynn and, and Justin and Irvin all have knowledge of the store and what goes on and they can answer any questions if you want to call so uh, we highly recommend anybody interested in the store that's not 100% comfortable with making the purchase without talking about it to, to give us a call. Our next guest is uh, one of the premier names in the firearms industry when it comes to suppressors. Um, I, I was first introduced to him uh, a couple of years ago. One of our good friends, Paul Phillips, um, introduced me, has used uh, Greg's products for a number of years. Uh, Greg Latka. Greg, thanks for being on the show. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, your history, who you are, where you grew up, uh, how you got into the firearms industry. And at 13 years old, I ended up in the machine shop, and from that point on, I never got out of it. I uh, basically ran 42 years of machining aerospace products. We've got things that... Uh, you know, M1 tanks, uh, helicopters, all the jets. We've got things on the moon. We did all those products. And uh, right around 1985, I wanted to do some design work on suppressors. So I got my FFL and SOT and started making suppressors and designing them at that point and got my first patent in 1991. Um, from that point on, we, uh, we incorporated under GSL technology in 93, and we started uh, building and designing suppressors. And uh, then uh, Gemtech contacted me. We built some product for them. And in somewhere around 94, I joined Gemtech. And then uh, after a couple of years, I was president of Gemtech for roughly 20 years. And then uh, last year, we went different directions. So now we're on our own here. We're doing our own product line. Gemtech's doing their own product line. So that's basically my background on this. Okay, so for the customers listening that want to contact you about a suppressor they're going to contact gsl can you tell them yes, how GSL to get a hold of you yes sir yeah. mm -hmm. um you have a website uh, contact info it's uh gsltechnology.com 
And Greg, you're being uh, a bit uh, modest because I know that a lot of the technology that we see uh, in suppressors in general today, uh, didn't you have a hand in kind of coming up with that uh, whole technology? Well, basically, when uh, when I got into it, everybody was using large diameter tubes and long tubes and things of that nature. Um, I came in and we just about brought them in half as far as size and weight and things of that nature. Um, all the quick disconnect stuff that uh, that we brought out came out of my factory because you know the aerospace industry we were into the quick disconnect couplers, and uh, so that's where the design and development came out of that. So basically. Um, I think that a lot of the uh, uh, baffle designs started off, you know, over in our place. Uh, I did some work with Joe Godini, and he's part of the uh, baffle system that we use currently, plus the other stuff that we developed over here. So it was a, it was a, a joint venture. I got to say, I'm completely baffled by how suppressors work in general, but uh, <laughs> Kelly's so looking at me across the desk here. You have got to be able to appreciate Zev's really bad sense of humor. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know, I know. But well, I, I, so the problem I, I is have... with suppressors, there's no school that you can go to to learn this stuff. There's, it's all self-taught, self-learned. Um, I just seem to have the ability to sort of take a vision as to what the gases are doing and how the flow is going and uh, when I get all done with experimenting the, the gas patterns pretty much match to what I've seen in my mind so that's a lot of times how I do things here now from experience I've been doing this for you know over 30 years uh, so, I, I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to go back. You said you've been in the machining business since you were 13 years old and yes, uh, mm-hmm. space and everything. You have skills today that most of the younger machinists don't have, and that is there was a time when there was not any CNC machine. Everything oh, that you right, was right. Mm-hmm. You know, there are guys who come into this, uh, you know, want to work for me or my brother who can program CNC machines and run them all day long, but you ask them to make a part on a lathe or a manual mill, and they don't know which way to turn the handle. So correct, yes. Mm -hmm. a skill that's almost gone by the wayside, but is invaluable in the firearms industry. It really is. And one of the things I insisted, my son runs the back end of the shop for me, and when when he came to work for me, I insisted that he learn some of the uh, old methods, you know. Um, a lot of the guys want to come in and just hit the CNC button the way we go with the computers. But uh, unless you understand tooling and design and and clearance and things of that nature, it it all comes together. It's just one is done with the CNC machine, the other one's done manually. And I grew up in that field. And I think that's probably the reason why you're able so quickly to take something from conception to production. I mean, I was amazed at how quickly you were able to come up with a can for the new uh, 375 lethal mag round. Uh, I know Paul uh, Phillips did a wonderful video, actually a set of videos, um, proofing not only how well it works and how uh, silent it is, but also in the ability to show how it did not affect the zero at all. Um, I think he recently did a 500-yard test on a three-shot group with uh, the one of your uh, cans on it and one without, and there was no difference. I think it was 1.75. Right, right. he had no POI shift. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing? So, And I, I really don't think that people who are just working on a CNC machine can take it from conception to production that quickly. So good job. No, it takes it takes a lot of years of experience, but uh, yeah, you know, Paul threw me a ringer on that one. He just showed up and told me this is what he wanted, and I had no specifications on it as far as the bullet and, and everything and uh, pressure curves. 
So we were just sort of going through my mind what we wanted to do when he came over and we tested it. They first shot it. I thought, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> it's pretty intense. But we put it on. I was really surprised how well it works. You know, one of the standard rules that applied um, until just recently is that you, uh, suppressors could shoot accurately, but they rather rarely shot to the same point of impact um, as the gun did without the suppressor on it. So what I'm saying is, for our listeners, you shoot a group and say it's in the middle of the X and then you put the suppressor on, it might be an inch and a half to the right and maybe a half inch high. It'll shoot all the same, you know, the, the bullets in the same hole, basically, but it won't be in the same place. And I know the one video that Paul did at, uh, was he shooting it at 500 yards, I think? Yes, uh, 500. No, no in the rain. impact change, and that, that's so phenomenal. Was was that luck, or is that something that you're finding is pretty consistent with your suppressors? Well, years ago, you know, we were all worried about DB reduction and things of that nature, so we didn't have a lot of uh, accurate shooters back then 20 years ago, so we were just more concerned about sound, but as we got down the road and we have people that can shoot a lot better better equipment to shoot with everything else it became important that uh, accuracy was part of it so it took a lot of years to develop what was causing the problems with accuracy and what was throwing the bullets and everything so you have to get a compromise as far as what it's going to take to make it accurate but also once the bullet leaves we contain that gas in there and, and do what we do but uh, nope the one that Paul's got is, is phenomenal it's doing a real good job you know, I was talking to Paul, and, and he's a very humble guy, but he's not only a great shooter, he's also a great wind coach. And I said to him, you know, how did you get a group like that? And he goes, Zev, I'm just the monkey behind the trigger. You know, it's the guys who call the wind that's more important. But he is an innovator and uh, brought that project to you quickly, and, and you came out with it quickly, and everybody is really, really happy with the results. And I've always wondered, does a suppressor actually give you more, you know, feet per second because you've got a little more space behind that bullet for those gases to work, or do the baffles take that effect away? Well, the, the thing that you have to do is, is, first thing, the gases are going faster than the bullet, so you need to get the bullet through the gas and get it out of there, but you don't want the gases to affect the bullet at that point in time, so you want the bullet to relieve, and then you have to use the gas itself with the pressure and close off the holes, so there's a lot of manipulating that we do to make sure that we can block off that hole. It's like a muffler on a car, except they don't have a through hole, and that's the problem we run into. And uh, if, you, if you're too aggressive, then basically you'll, you'll tip of the bullet. Can you tell me whether or not that, that uh, suppressor that uh, uh, Paul used also had a muzzle brake? Yes, sir. Inside it does, yes. Now, one of the things that we found out when working with our 50 cals, you take a muzzle brake off a 50 cal to put a can on it, and it will flat whack you. People, for some reason, have the misconception that uh, a suppressor works like a muzzle brake, and it, it's two totally different concepts. And I suppose a suppressor might reduce the felt recoil a little bit simply because it's with that gas expanding and hitting the front of the, the suppressor, it might reduce it a little bit, but it's not like a muzzle brake. Well, actually, uh, it should be if it's done properly, because uh, what happens is the gases come out of the barrel, 
and hit the first blast baffle, and it pushes it forward. It's like going on the highway. You put your hand out the window, and the, the wind pushes your hand back. It's basically the same thing. It's pulling the gun forward. So if it's done correctly, it should work. Well, uh, I know several people, including my son, the only two times he's ever been scope bit in his life was when they took a, a 50 cal, took the suppressor, uh, put on a suppressor and took the muzzle brake off and uh, it, it got him. So the, as compared to the clamshell type muzzle brake that we use on our 50 cal, mm-hmm. right. the suppressors that he's used has not been nearly as effective as a muzzle brake. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we should take a look at that. <laughs> That's, uh, that's a great there. thing. Um, yeah, just a, a funny thing is, you probably heard about it. It seems like everybody in the world has heard there's been a new uh, record set for the longest confirmed kill in combat, right. uh-huh. a, a Canadian sniper. They use a suppressor on their guns. As a matter of fact, they, they have a policy that they do not shoot their guns without the suppressor on it, both for the, the safety of the shooter and and the, the uh, you know lack of... of <laughs> it, does, it does a few things. It gets rid of the signature of the flash. It gets rid of the signature of the noise, especially at night. If you have a flash out there, I don't care if it's quiet or not. They can see where it came from. Well, I think most of the people that shoot a fifty cal, they're not nearly as worried about the uh, recoil as they are the muzzle blast. I mean, with the recoil, with the uh, muzzle brake on there, uh, man, it doesn't take many rounds for you to really pay the price. And with the suppressor on there, you eliminate all that. It just makes yeah. it much pleasant. It eliminates is, a lot of fatigue that you end up with. And everybody else does. You know, you know. I know the Israelis, they're only allowed to shoot 10 rounds a day. Uh, uh, really? Yep. Yeah, yeah, they have a... Um, um, military-wide policy when you're training for on a 50 cal, 10 rounds a day max. That's it. Now the Canadians, they don't have that problem. They shoot, you know, 50 to 100 sure. rounds a day. Sure. Mm-hmm. Which makes them as good as they are, and why they continue to to make and break the records and and uh, be able to perform. Hey, Greg, um, you might be one of the guys that can tell us what's going on with the new laws and the proposition to make uh, suppressors no longer an NFA item. Do you have any insight you could share? Well, um, everybody thought that when uh, Trump got in, it was going to happen right away. That's the first thing he's going to do before he even had lunch to sign that bill, and that's not what's going to happen. I think that if we go a year and a half to two years, you might see something come through unless they tack it into another bill with uh, other things on there and they sneak it through. Um, basically, I think if they are not real careful, uh, we could end up with Pandora's box where you have uh, anybody and everybody with suppressors out there. And if somebody goes into a facility using a suppressor and uh, a lot of people get hurt, you're going to hear a lot, of, uh, a lot of people come back and say, hey, see, we told you so. So I think they got to be real careful what they do and how they approach it. I, the biggest problem with the suppressors, as far as I'm concerned, is the delivery time. Nobody wants to wait nine months to get a suppressor. And I don't know if there's anything else in the business that you have to wait nine months for other than building a house. Yeah, that that is a problem. And I know because I'm in the process of uh, getting my uh, tax stamp for the suppressor I purchased from you. So um, anyway, one of the things that I wanted to bring up, and, and, and as you know, it does... It, we used to call them silencers, but it doesn't make it silent. And as a matter of fact, if you had a guy walk into a gym uh, or a, a, a club 
and started shooting with a suppressor on, everybody would still know what was going on. I mean, they would be able to tell. Now, it doesn't sound like what they're used to hearing as a gun, but it's right. not going right. to be so, so that nobody happened. Uh, you know, there's a funny law out there. It's a federal law that says anything that creates over 129 decibels, I think it is, um, has to be suppressed in some way. Well, you know, all firearms, you know, <laughs> Yeah. But so they have a, a dilemma. Do we enforce a law that already exists? And um, I always wondered why they thought suppressors made you more dangerous. But um, you know, it's just because I think that that's what the uh, the bad guys in the movies use. And you know, Kelly, I well, take that's the problem. With it was Hollywood that created that monster. Yeah, and I take issue with the people that say this is going to happen because I think it'll happen, and that's what John Lott. Uh, the author that you and I went to go see uh, about four or five months back who came to the, um, uh, U, uh, the University of Arizona Law School to speak. Um, he's a professor who talks about uh, why gun laws should be better and why they should be easier and why there shouldn't be so many. And one of his biggest things that he talks about is the fear of something happening. So people said, oh, if everybody carries a concealed weapons permit, bad things are going to happen because we think so. And yet it hasn't right. happened. And it's the same right. thing with the suppressor. People are worried that, you know, it's going to fall in the wrong hands and, and something bad is going to happen. Well, we can't just suppose that's going to happen and that's why we should, you know, abrogate any kind of relief from that law. It's the same thing with modern sporting rifles. I mean, sure. when the ban is taken away, what happened? How many shootings are using an AR-15 or an AK? Not many. Um, yep. So, yeah, I, I totally take issue with, with people who think that uh, we shouldn't make uh, suppressors legal because somebody is going to use it in a bad way. Right, yeah. Uh, basically, it's, it's like a car. You don't run around with your car with a bottle of muffler on it. And why would you want to go deaf when you go to the range? Exactly. You know, the uh, um, Black Hawk Down, they had uh, the one fellow with a 249, and he was sitting right there with a fellow next to the muzzle, and he touched it off, and I thought, oh, God, he just lost his hearing on that one. And if he had had suppressor, that would have never happened. It only yeah. takes one or two rounds to lose your hearing completely if you does it done wrong. Boy, I made a big mistake. I was in South Africa, and I shot across the, the back of a pickup truck with a muzzle brake on. It hit the back window of the truck and went right in my ear, and, and that ear rang for four months. Oh, yeah. 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 It, it I, only take, and then once your hearing is gone, it won't come back. There's nothing they can do for it. I know that uh, I think it's 43 states now that allow hunting with suppressors, and, and I think, um, you know, they... Last count that I had, uh, there was 42 states that allowed suppressors, and 38 of those allowed hunting. Now, if they've added some to that since then, I haven't uh, been able to see the figures, but that's the last number I had. Yeah, I know uh, we here in Arizona are now allowed to hunt with suppressors, and, and we've been... Uh, kind of a recent addition to that. Um, one of the things is that they thought it would give the, the animals a disadvantage. It would give the hunters an unfair advantage being able to shoot at these animals that uh, without them hearing it. But, you know, it, it's, they can hear the trigger fall. They, it's not the gun that... that the Definitely. That, Definitely. You know, there, there's a lot to it. And I know I shot my elk at 780 yards. He knew I was there. It was obvious to us because he was looking right at us, but sure. he, wasn't, he wasn't worried about it. So uh, the fact that we're able to reach out and, and shoot farther ranges now than we've ever been able to before right. uh, is just a, a little bit of advantage. It just kind of changes the game. I'd like to right. see... Do you make uh, suppressors specifically for hunting, you know, with the, with lighter weight and smaller dimensions in mind? 
Yes, we do. Um, basically, when you go into uh, hunting, you've got a longer rifle. You're not worried about somebody doing a 7-inch barrel on an AR-15 style. Uh, most people out there have longer barrels, so the pressure curves way down at that point in time. So we do have some things. Uh, we have one that's an aluminum one that uh, for rated for a 308 um, on a, like a 22, 24-inch barrel. Uh, but it's not something you're going to go out to the range and shoot 200 rounds through. It's going you're going to shoot four or five rounds, and you know that that's what you're going to do when you're when you're hunting. So it, it gives you a little bit better package. But I think most people want something that's more universal. So we we feed both sides of the street. Depends on what you're looking for. Well, good. Uh, what do you think about the suppressors that that slide over the barrel, and about 50 percent of them are are um, behind the muzzle and 50% of them are in front of the muzzle. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, it, unless it's done correctly, the, the back end of the suppressor is just a waste of time. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, absorb a lot of the pressures. You get some that go back there, but most of them being forced forward. We've done the testing on that and proved that. So uh, you, you get something like a Valmain where they're, where they're behind the uh, muzzle that's not real effective. Well, I know the Canadians on their 50 cals use a, a, a suppressor that's about 17, I think it's 17 inches long, and it's about three and a half inches in diameter, and uh, a, if it's not 50%, it's close to that, um, sits back over the barrel, and one of the reasons that we uh, know this is because in supplying barrels with them, we, we had to come up with the dimension exactly at a certain spot on the barrel where we could uh, turn a flat on it so that when these okay. suppressors are on there, it, they had used an O-ring seal that would, would set on that flat because right. with a tapered barrel, it just wasn't consistent enough for them to be able to have it mount that way. Well, it sounds to me like they're using a combination of muzzle brake internally, and that'll help make it make the gases go into the back chamber. But you have to you have to forcibly direct it that way. You know, Greg, uh, when you guys were talking about hunting, and and uh, Kelly mentioned the trigger falling, they could hear that. Um, I had the opportunity last year to be the king of two mile and uh, doing some drone work. And one of the tasks I had was to be about a mile away from where the shooters were, so that I can be within enough range to to take pictures at the of the two mile target. And it was the first time I've ever been down range. Uh, under rifle fire well of course I was protected but it was the first time that I actually heard it and, w and what was really cool was that first thing I heard was the crack of the bullet overhead so Correct. animal is going to hear that or the herd is going to hear that before they even hear the muzzle blast because what I heard was a crack then I heard the ding of the target and only then did I hear the muzzle blast so that was pretty interesting right. No. Well, typically yeah. what we found is when you uh, shoot at an animal, they hear the crack as it goes by, and they think the bullet came from behind them. They'll, they'll, a lot of times they'll run towards the shooter. Hmm. I've actually, um, a couple of times, and, and I will admit I've missed a few shots. There was a time when I went hunting when I thought, how could anybody miss? Because, I mean, you don't pull the trigger unless you're absolutely certain you're going to hit the target. Um, but I missed a couple of shots, and... Um, at 850 yards on an elk and he kind of turned his head and looked at the dirt behind him it went right under his chin and hit the dirt on the side of the hill behind him he kind of looked at it had no idea what it was and just went back to eating so um it didn't scare him it it was probably insignificant enough to him that uh, he didn't run off so yeah interesting what does and doesn't affect uh, the animals it really 
You know, the interesting thing that I'm finding is that all these states have allowed hunting with suppressors, but very, very few people know that you can. Here in Michigan, they're surprised that you can. So I don't know if the word's getting out very good or what's going on, but uh, it's sort of something that is in the background that nobody's really aware of. You know, here's one of the problems I know that you face. Uh, There's just no standards uh, in terms of the way guns are built and the the diameter of the muzzle and and how to determine what thread needs to be on it and how much shank it is. And I mean, it would be hard for you to, you know, sell muzzle brakes uh, retail on a shelf and have some guy come in and say, yeah, uh, you might have a card with it that says, tell your gunsmith, you know, it's, uh, you know, whatever the pitch of the thread is, and it's this long, and that's what it has to be in order to install this. But that's a pretty significant um, undertaking. Oh, it is. And if you're not concentric with the barrel, uh, it causes a lot of grief. Now, if you get an AR style and you have a muzzle breaker or a flash hide around there, it's really not an issue because, you know, it's so short, you're missing it anyway. But when you put a suppressor on there, you're hanging out there, you know, seven, eight inches. It makes a lot of difference if concentricity is off. And we've had customers that complain that the gun shot fine before we put the suppressor on. But once you put the suppressor on, it doesn't doesn't work worth a crap. Well... We jump the whole thing and we take a look at it and find out the barrel's not concentric with the bore. Hey, Greg, I hate to tell you this, but we're out of time. It really flies when we're having a good time. I really enjoyed you being on the show. Thanks for being well, here with you. us. And, uh, we'll, we'll have you back when we got more time sometime in the future. Sure, sure. Appreciate okay, it. Okay, I appreciate it. Thank you. And once again, we come to the end of another great show. I'd like to thank our listeners for spending a very valuable time with us. Remember, we're here next Friday on Voice America Sports Channel for another exciting episode of Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. And remember, if you can't catch us live, you can always find the episode on our website. Uh, Follow the links and and hear any of our pre-recorded episodes. So once again, thanks again. Go out and enjoy the weekend. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time at 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.